this thing on? Hello? Hey, here we go. It's been a while. How are y'all doing this morning? Good? It's really hot up there because we're all, we're moving around and everything. So if I'm sweating, it's, well, that's why. And hopefully you are too. I don't know. Here we are. I'm going to move this so that my coffee doesn't well, we could, but I don't know. It just moves the air around up there. I don't like it too much. Thanks for the tip, though. All right, mute that. All right. Well, it is my pleasure to get to share God's Word with you this morning. Um, today, we're wrapping up our series called, Who Are We? Uh, really is answering that question, who are we as a church? What do we stand for? Over the last several weeks, we've been exploring key beliefs that shape both who we are as a faith community, and it positions us to stand up for and act on those beliefs in our lives. When Pastor Stefan and I were mapping out this series, uh, it was a fun time. We were, it it was fun. Uh, But uh, we didn't get these beliefs or these ideas from pop philosophy of today. We didn't uh, get them from some self-help celebrity guru that says things all nice and pretty. Uh, Instead, our inspiration came from God's Word, as well as the revelation that God has given our brothers and sisters throughout the ages who have developed theologies, studies about God that are core to the Christian faith. Now, full disclosure, we could have just told you to read a 900-page book textbook that has it all laid out for you in systematic order and all of that. But I don't know about you, but I get about five or ten pages into a textbook, and I'm reaching for my pillow or a cup of coffee. (laughs) And so, uh, you know, to save you some time and some heartache, we figured this would be a a better opportunity for us to share these ideas, and so we wanted to lay them before you, our church family, for the last eight weeks. Now, today is our ninth and final installment in these topics that we've covered. Sandy, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. We learned that uh, God loves us without limits. He loves us as an intentionally intimate God who has shown us forgiveness, grace, and mercy, which has and continues to reveal to us every example of being fathered through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We saw how we are carried, covered, and completed by a God who gives us victory and helps us overcome, that in our faith we are illuminated by God's word and revelation, and through the process of sanctification, we experience, embody, and express a transformational, process-driven character. And if you missed any of those weeks and you'd like to dig a little deeper, you can always check the sermons out on our website or on our new app, Life City PDX. And today's final topic, it's kind of highlighted there for you on the screen, is that you are his people, he is your God. But what does that mean? And why is that important for us today? Woven throughout all of this, as we're talking We're going to be looking at this big idea that our testimony as God's people, our testimony is that he has set us free. 
So let's answer the question. What does it mean to be God's people? We read in Genesis 1 about the creation of people. We learn that God made us to be like him and to partner with him in building a beautiful, flourishing world. Uh, Sandy, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, which is the cool old British way of saying the reason why we exist is to worship God and enjoy him in a relationship. And we see this in the first two chapters of Genesis in the Bible. So what happened? Sin happened, and Adam and Eve chose to glorify themselves and rebel against God's good for them, and through that sin, they died spiritually and have passed that nature of sin, that spiritual death on to you and me. Theologically, we call this the sin nature. We call this depravity. It's that inner bent that we have toward sin and rebellion. For example, when I mentioned that I might assign you a 900-page textbook to read. Some of you were thinking, nah, you're tripping. If you think I'd be into something like that, no, no. Um, no, thank you. That may not have been the words you were saying in your head, but no. Anyway, I digress. <clears throat> so the story unfolds, and we see the problem get worse and worse, and it gets further and further away from this picture that God originally intended for us to experience in a relationship with our creator to glorify and enjoy life with him. But when all hope seemed lost, God initiated a relationship with a man named Abram. God called him to a country that he would show to him and that God would make Abram's family into a great nation. Abram's name even means great father. And so Abram responds, he goes, and, and through it all, God blessed him. But even in his old age, Abram didn't have any children with his wife, Sarah. That's a problem. And so we see in Genesis 17, Sandy, you can go ahead and put it up on the screen there, that God invited Abraham into a deeper intimacy with him through a covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you a father, or the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And catch this, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, as God continued to reveal his plan, Abraham responded by faith every time. It didn't always look pretty, it didn't always look perfect, but he responded with faith every time. Even when it didn't make sense, he chose faith. And that legacy of faith carries out throughout the whole of Scripture. 
The Apostle Paul picked up on this when he wrote to the Galatians saying, what's more, the scriptures looked forward to this time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. And God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. So all who put their faith in Christ share the same blessing Abraham received because of his faith. So when you decide to put your faith and trust in Jesus, you are participating in the blessing and legacy of faith that we see modeled by the life of Abraham in Genesis, which ultimately leads us to the place where because of your faith in Jesus, you are his people and he is your God. And as God's people, we are given the testimony of freedom and of relationship. Our testimony is that he has set us free. So years go by. And Abraham had the son God had promised to him. His name was Isaac. It's a good name. And the family grew beyond that generation and became known as the people of Israel who eventually were made slaves in the land of Egypt. God's people were slaves for 430 years before God raised up a deliverer named Moses who led God's people, Israel, into freedom and into possessing the land that was promised to Abraham. Sandy, you can go ahead and go to the next slide. Near the beginning of this great deliverance effort, God said to Moses in Exodus 6, 6 through 7, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, here we go, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. At this point in the story, God was about to rescue his people and restore their testimony as a people seen, loved, cared for, and set free. But not just any people, God's people. And through that relationship, they would respond in knowing that he was their God. Now, why is it important to review these stories this morning? How do they enrich our Christian faith? How do they enrich this topic? I'm glad you asked. Because God's heart for his people is that they would be his people and he would be their God. God has a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God is reckless in the way he loves his people. The problem that keeps getting in the way is sin. One particular sin that keeps coming up in Scripture over and over again is the issue of idolatry where the people would worship anything or anyone instead of the God who they were in covenant relationship with. Because it's really easy to have the thought, to think, you are his people, he is your God. Check mark, got it, yep, we're good. And have that mental ascent, but to actually let it sink deep is a different story. We see story after story of how people in Israel would have a mix of failures and victories. They might have another failure and another failure and then a victory. Even though they had promised to be devoted to this God and God alone, they broke covenant and were unfaithful through their worship of other gods. Now, you and I may never physically bow ourselves before a block of wood, 
that's carved in the shape of some thing, some other deity. We may not sing songs or offer sacrifices to these gods of other world religions. Maybe we won't provoke God through those types of actions. But like Adam and Eve, are we glorifying ourselves and rebelling against our good God? The truth is we were made to worship and enjoy God, but it's all too common that we misdirect our worship and enjoyment onto other things or other individuals. So before we dig into our main passage today, I want you to know that there's good news. Jesus came to set us free and restore us to a right relationship with God and set us on a path to experience more and more of that flourishing that God intended for us in the beginning. The phrase, you are his people and he is your God, it's a Bible phrase. We could spend a couple of hours, we're not going to, uh, going through each and every example in Scripture, but instead I want to focus on one passage in the book of Hosea. Sandy, you can go to the next slide. Hosea was a prophet who was trusted with the task of not just delivering and speaking messages for the Lord to the people, but he was also called to model these messages through his life. The prophetic action that he was called to was to marry a prostitute, to illustrate how Israel had acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. Through his life and marriage, Hosea would show how constant and faithful God is in loving his people by the way he loved his wife. That even though she was unfaithful and chased after other lovers, he remained faithful to his covenant. So, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me, physical or digital, to Hosea chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. If you happen to not have your Bibles with you, I have it up there on the screen. I apologize for the light lettering. Here we go. Hosea 2, beginning in verse 14. But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from captivity in Egypt. When, the day, when that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as Yahweh. In that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. 
Then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines, and the olive trees. And they, in turn, will answer, Jezreel, God plants. At that time, I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved. And to those I called not my people, I will say, Now you are my people. And they will reply, You are our God. Amen. The first thing we learn from our passage is that, it's up on the screen, God initiates our relationship with him. It starts with God. The truth is, God wants us, and he's willing to fight for us, even when we've been unfaithful and acting a fool. Like we sang earlier in the service, in that song, How He Loves, we are his portion, and he is our prize, which means that even in our mess, even in our broken lostness, God still pursues us. God wants to win us back into a relationship with him. So in that place, we find here that God will lead us away from all of the noise of all our distractions to the point where our only choice is to hear him out and experience his tender heart toward us. And friends, that takes humility. It takes repentance. It takes us being willing to surrender control over our situation and over our souls. The truth is, getting alone with God can be difficult, but it's worth it. So watch this. In verse 15, God promises to transform a, a valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. Though the effects of sin and brokenness may have wreaked all sorts of havoc on our lives, God is resolved to not leave us there. It's true, our God is a God of justice and righteousness. And he's also a God of hope and a God for our future. Our God is a God of promise and favor. Our God is not only the one who rescues us from our mess, but he also intends to restore us and make us whole and complete. The valley of trouble here refers to a place where the people had to deal with the sin of disobedience and unfaithfulness to God. The people, you might remember, uh, so uh, Joshua was leading the people. First town that they came to was Jericho, sacked it, awesome, conquered the city of Jericho. But they were supposed to, like, decimate everything. But a man named Achan took some of the plunder that God had told them to destroy for himself. And that made God angry. That provoked God to anger. Uh, the, I think the verse actually says he burned with anger. You don't want that. So in Joshua chapter 7, the people were met with the choice. Either they could deal with the sin that was holding them back from experiencing victory over their enemies. Or... They could continue in their sin and reject God in a saving presence with them. Now, for everyone but Achan, this was an easy choice. They chose God. They made the right choice. And after the valley of trouble, they began to experience victory again. And so God initiates our relationship with him with the promise of hope. So that 
rather than experiencing trouble, we would experience his goodness through the love and hope that he brings. And in that place, our response to the salvation and freedom is to give ourselves to him, wholly and completely, much like the Israelites did when they were first delivered from the land of Egypt. God meets us in natural places in our lives, but ultimately he wants to do a supernatural thing in and through us which will secure our testimony that he has set us free because God initiates our relationship with him. The second thing we learned from our passage, it's up there on the screen, God invites us into deeper intimacy with him. When we experience God's rescue and restoration, we will no longer see God from a place of religion or idolatry. Instead, we will see him from the place of relationship and intimacy. Religion says that I have a place because of what I can do. Religion is transactional. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. I do this religious action, that secures my place. That's religion that's generally thought of. That's When you look at world religions, that's a very common structure. But I believe that God is not interested in our religiousness because he wants our hearts. You are loved because he loves you, simply because that's who he is and he's chosen you. You don't have to fight for your place in the family of God. You don't have to struggle to become good enough. You can't anyway. Because friends, before you even knew who God was, he favored you. He loved you so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you in order to buy you back and restore you to be with him. Now, the culture of our world we live in is one of transaction, which is why it's hard to believe that that's all that God wants is us. It's hard to believe that anyone could be that good. And the covenant relationship that God wants with you is exclusive. He will not share you with another. So in verse 17, the charge is given by God to us to not associate with other gods who stole our affection from him. He insists, quote, you will never mention them again. Why? Because intimacy with the Lord will lead to a clarity about who he is. When our response to him is exclusive intimacy, we will then be defined by no other name than his. You know, when you open yourself up to intimacy, like let's say I were to go, like let's say Stefan was standing there and I were to go give him a hug. Now there's a chance he might act a fool. He might, he might try to like jab me or something. He's nicer than that. He really is. But it's like, if I go in for a hug, like, I'm opening myself up, literally, physically, opening myself up to the possibility of getting hurt. Now, he's like hugging a big bear. It's, it's really awesome. But just saying, I digress. <laughs> anyway, um, my point is, though, it's like, when, when you go in for something that is like a relational, intimate kind of thing, between people even, like physically, you're opening yourself up to getting hurt, right? Or emotionally, if you open up to somebody about stuff that you've gone through, stuff that you are going through, 
Maybe you share your story and you think, man, I think if they knew that I did that thing in my past, I mean, they might never ever speak to me again. If I experienced that and they knew I experienced that, then maybe they might not want to be my friend. That's a very real dynamic that we're faced with, that opening yourself up gives you opportunity to be hurt. But without that risk, you can't really experience the love that's there for you. And so there's this song Stefan introduced me to. It's by a guy named Antoine Bradford. It's called Safe. And I still have yet to learn the whole song, but the chorus goes something like this. Because if loving you is putting me in danger, then I don't ever want to be safe. Because you have been the greatest gift to me, apart from amazing grace. And when heaven and earth collide and find, I didn't write that part out then I don't ever want to be saved. I'm driving stuff on. That's right. <laughs> That's one of his favorite songs. But what that song speaks to me every time I hear it, and uh, when I choose to get emotional about it, I, like, I get emotional, is that when you open yourself up in a relationship, there's vulnerability there, like we were talking about. You can get hurt. And maybe that's why we default so much to a place of religion over relationship. Because at least with religion, we can keep God at arm's length without actually getting close to him, without actually getting real with him, without allowing him to get real with us. Because in this life, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be hardships and hurts. There's no doubt of that. But the truth we find in verse 18 is that God says he wants to make sure that we're safe. As sure as you know that God has rescued you and restored you, God will protect you and he will care for you. God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. That's his nature. That's default. Level one of knowing God is understanding this idea of promise-making and promise-keeping. So if he says it, You better believe he's going to do it. You can trust that he will follow through on that promise. He never fails to keep a promise. And the truth is God's love for you is as strong as a husband's love for his wife. That's pretty strong. God is head over heels for you individually and as his people. And out of his love and devotion toward us, God promises to make us his wife forever. That's not just a short time. That's forever. And to do that, he promises to do these things. Showing us righteousness and justice and showing us unfailing love and compassion, which all of those actions point us to a revelation of God's character, what he's like. And God promises that he will be consistent with his character. And when we open up ourselves to intimacy and covenant with God, He will reveal to us that he is faithful and he is jealous for you. And all of this means that if we have a committed covenant relationship with the Lord, that he is our God. 
and that we get to experience all the good of being identified with him. But that also means that we're his people, which means that we belong to him. We're pledging our loyalty and devotion to him alone. God wants us to know him as Yahweh, the God of covenants. So God is inviting you and me this morning into deeper intimacy with him. And through that, we experience our testimony of being set free. The third thing we learn from our passage is that God inspires our devotion through his love and goodness. Earlier in the chapter, we see a completely different tone from God. We didn't cover that because it would have added to confusion. Uh, But God is fed up with Israel at this point uh, because of their unfaithfulness, uh, their experience, uh, you know, they experience the consequence of their sin. They deserve to have everything taken away at this point. And yet, in this section, we see that God, in his great love for them, is moved to give them what they don't deserve. And this reminds me of what we read in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Other translations say God's kindness leads us to repentance. God's kindness is not a license to act a fool and stay in rebellion. Don't misunderstand me there. God is still righteous. God is still just. But it's his kindness when he's patient in our process that leads us towards repentance. So when God gives us what we don't deserve, it moves us to want to honor that testimony that he's building into our lives, a testimony that speaks of the freedom he gives to us through faith in Jesus, that all we have in this life is his doing, not our doing. And all of this moves us to a place of really receiving the love that he's shown us. It moves us to a place of being his people who respond to his kindness by declaring that he is our God. Our testimony is that we are set free to be who God created us to be at the start, people who glorify him and enjoy him forever. And so we learned that God initiates. He makes the first move. What will yours be? God invites. He's asking you to come away with him, to be with him, to be alone with him, to be exclusive just to him. God inspires. He moves us toward walking in holiness. He moves us towards walking in a way that honors his name so that we would be faithful to him who has been faithful to us. Now, why does God do all these things? Why does he initiate? Why does he invite? Why does he inspire? Other than the fact that we're dull sometimes and we don't quite get it all the time. It's because he loves us. And that's easy to say. It's even harder to allow ourselves to receive sometimes because sometimes we don't feel very lovable. I know when, like, I'm all stressed out and 
freaked out about what fill-in-the-blank thing, it's really hard for me to be in a place of receiving. So um, as Jordan comes up, uh, we're going to transition now. And as we continue in worship, I want you to consider how, how do you want to respond to his love for you? Now, maybe you've been here, you are here, you are here today. Maybe you're here and, you know, you know the love of God. And that's, you know, it's something that you've experienced a lot of and you're actually good in that place of receiving. I believe there's still a place where you can go deeper in intimacy with him. For all of us, I mean, on this side of eternity, there's always opportunity for us to grow. And if you're here today and it's been really hard for you to receive from him, like whether you've disqualified yourself, like, God, I've gone too far. God, I'm too far away from you. God, I've done too much. You don't know what I've done. Of course he does. He knows what you've done. And he still loves you. And he still chases after you. Because he loves you with a reckless love. That doesn't make sense. It makes him look foolish. But he does. He loves you. And so, let's pray.